In his book called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, author John Dixon writes about his introduction to the Christian faith. He says, under God, my own conversion was the result of one person's willingness to embody the mission of the friend of sinners. One of the relics of Australia's Christian heritage is the once a week scripture lesson offered in many state high schools around the country. And one of these scripture teachers, Brenda was her name, had the courage to invite my entire class to her home for discussions about God. Now, the invitation would have gone unnoticed, except for the fact that she added, and if anyone gets hungry, I'll be making hamburgers and milkshakes. As I looked around the room at all my friends, all of them skeptics like me, I was amazed that this woman would open her home and kitchen to us. Some of the lads were among the worst sinners in our school. One was a drug user and seller. One was a class clown and bully. And one was a petty thief with a string of breaking and entering charges to his credit. I could not figure Brenda out. She was wealthy and intelligent. She had an exciting social life, married to a leading Australian businessman. What was she thinking, inviting us for a meal and discussion? At no point... Was this teacher pushy or preachy? Her style was completely relaxed and incredibly generous. When her VCR went missing one day, she made almost nothing of it, even though she suspected quite reasonably that it was someone from our group. For me, her open, flexible, generous attitude toward us sinners was the doorway into a life of faith. As we ate and drank and and talked, it was clear This was no missionary ploy on her part. She truly cared for us and treated us like friends or perhaps more accurately, like sons. As a result, over the course of the next year, she introduced several of us in the class to the ultimate friend of sinners, Jesus. I love stories like that. I hear that and I just go, yes. That's what it's about. That's what we're about, or at least that's what we're supposed to be about. We talk about bringing Jesus to life, bringing Jesus to life in us so that his life spills out of us into others. Brenda brought Jesus to life and she did it in in practical, simple ways. Okay, maybe not so simple practical you know she opened her home to a bunch of thugs and she she did a lot of cooking and she probably spent a lot of money over the course of the year on that food and my guess is that they were young men so she did the lion's share of the cleanup she lost a vcr and who knows what else okay so maybe it wasn't so practical either but the last line of that story did you hear it She introduced several of us from the class to the ultimate friend of sinners, Jesus. I'm thinking there's a connection here. As a result of her sacrifice, Jesus was brought to life in the lives of these young men. Now, remember way back when we started this series, we talked about the requirements that Jesus laid out to those who would be his followers. There were two. Remember way back? What were they? First one? Anybody who wants to follow me must? 
Deny self. Second one, take up your cross. Die to self. Die to self. If a person is to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus is saying they must die to self. That is, they're going to live their daily life as if they are no longer important. you have any trouble with that? I do on a regular basis. My desires, my needs, my priorities, they take a back seat to Jesus. They take a back seat to obeying Jesus. Jesus is all important and all consuming. And so in our journey together, we've looked at Jesus, intimate relationship with his father, and we saw that that's where this whole thing starts. If we're going to bring Jesus to life, then it is the life of God that must You know, we just we run around like happy little kids, recognizing that the God of the universe is our Papa. Yes. Thank you. Yes. The rest of you excited at all about that truth? Okay. Okay. That's where it starts. Bringing Jesus to life begins with intimate relationship with Papa, who just happens to be the creator of the universe. No biggie. Okay. Second thing we looked at the way God's people are. to see them as purposeful and tools that our Papa uses in our lives to mold us and to shape us and to mature us. And remember, we've said again and again, the enemy is always right there, always right there, wants that test to become a temptation and lures us to doubt the character and the goodness of our Father because he hates our Father. He doesn't care a hoot about us, but he hates our Father. And so if he can get us to doubt the character of our God, he is victorious. Third theme we began looking at last Sunday in bringing Jesus to life, looking at the, the reality, the importance of loving others as Jesus loved others. And what we discovered last Sunday is that in order for love to really be love, there must be, do you remember, one word. Sacrifice. Yes. Thanks, Chad. Sacrifice. John told us in first John chapter four that that God is love. He is the definition of love. He stated God is love. And we know what love is because God sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He didn't sit on his throne and shout, I love you. He sent his son. John says, this is how we know what love is. God sent his son. As a sacrifice for our sins. So to love others involves giving of ourselves in some way for them. It is sacrifice. Love includes sacrifice. If we claim to love someone and there is no sacrifice, then it is not love. John says love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Sacrificial action. If I love you, I will show you by my actions, by my sacrifice, by giving of myself for your well-being. Okay, our text this morning 
found in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew's gospel, um, you need to know that the immediate context that comes just before our reading is that Jesus has just healed a man. The man has been paralyzed uh, probably all of his life. And Jesus has healed him. Incredible miracle. But just before he healed the man, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Now that made him very popular amongst the teachers of the law. You know, immediately labeled as a blasphemer. You know, who does this man think that he is? That has happened just before our text. And then what comes right after our text is Jesus is being questioned about fasting. Why do the Pharisees and John's disciples fast, but Jesus' disciples don't fast? So there's, there's a very real sense here where people are trying to figure out the mystery of who Jesus is. Let's stand together and read, okay? Trying to figure out who Jesus is. Let's read together. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. My brothers and my sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. Amen. Okay, go ahead and be seated. Did you hear what you just read? When questioned about why you ate with tax collectors and sinners, it's uh, it's not so much a question if you if you look at the nuance of the language, it's 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 more of a more of a condemnation. <laughs> Your teacher eats with tax collectors and sinners. What kind of a teacher is that? In other words. You've given your life to following this man. Look what he does. And so Jesus said to them, the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do. That he didn't come to call the righteous, or at least those who thought they were. He came to call sinners and he told them to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Quote from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. All right. Jesus said, go and learn. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and learn. What does Jesus mean? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Ask your neighbor. What does Jesus mean when he says that? Okay, we ready? What'd you learn from your neighbor? Chad's got a microphone. Which immediately quells all the enthusiasm for sharing. I'm going to speak the microphone. Dr. Richmond, what sayest thou? <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, God is saying that um, he requires mercy, which is a readiness to be helpful to somebody in need, mm. um, as opposed to which requires action, 
on somebody's part and acting out love, acting out their so-called faith rather than thinking mercifully but being merciful as opposed to sacrifice and i don't i don't know whether this is true or not but i think of the sacrifice that he's talking about as dropping one of those loud coins in the box in the in the church which requires no no activity quite possible quite possible yeah yeah good good who else excellent thoughts all right genie Well, the first thing I thought of is if you're sacrificing, you're trying to prepare yourself like you might fast or something. Grace to those around you. It's like self-serving almost that you're fasting and you're trying to get ready. But really what you need to be doing is reaching out to others with grace and mercy. Okay. Good. Good thoughts. Anyone else? Ellen. Uh, the verse we both came up with was what I desire more than sacrifices or broken and contrite heart. Ooh. So it's back to the attitude being more important than action. I can sacrifice with a really lousy attitude. And mm. let me tell you, I've been quite good at practicing that in these past <laughs> few weeks. <laughs> but God is more good, concerned about my attitude. My <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. Anyone else? Good stuff. Cheryl. Um, Micah 6, 8. um, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And Mm. what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Wow. Wow. Yeah. Anyone else want to add? Yes. Mary. More of a question. Okay. I hope I'll have more of an answer. (laughs) You said it was, I believe that's right, Hosea said that he desired more Uh than sacrifices. So that was still still during the time when people did the sacrifices in the temple, correct? Yes. Yes. So was God then saying at that point, you don't need to sacrifice anymore or preparing for the time of Christ or, you know, it makes sense to me, you know, God wants his character of being merciful mm-hmm. in his children, mm-hmm. in, in all mm-hmm. of us. So I understand that. But I was always a little perplexed about was he telling them no longer need to yeah. sacrifice yeah. Yeah. the animals. And, and the truth is that that except for the, the Passover, the annual uh, celebration of the Passover, the sacrificial system was was in large part gone uh, from from the Jewish nation at that point. Let's let's talk about Hosea for just a second. You, you raise a great question and it pushes us right in that direction. Remember, Hosea was the prophet in the Old Testament commanded by God to go and marry an adulterous woman. And so Hosea went and he married this woman. And as you might expect, she was unfaithful. She ran off to be with someone else. God says, go get her and bring her back. Hosea goes, gets his wife, brings her back and says, you're my wife. God wants us to be together. Stay here. Of course, she doesn't listen. She runs off again. Hosea goes and gets her and he brings her back. She runs time and time again. The woman is running off. Hosea is running back and saying, you are my wife. You are my wife. Let me love you as my wife. Hosea was an illustration.
the people were continuously running to someone else. Giving their hearts and their love to someone or something else. And here's what's interesting. When Hosea spoke those words for God to the people of Israel, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He used the Hebrew word there for mercy, which is very close in its meaning to the idea of of covenant love. You know, here is something that we have agreed on together. This is not a contractual relationship. This is this is a covenant. And it's a word that is often used of loyalty to the Lord, covenant relationship to the Lord and right conduct with people. Relationship to the Lord, right relationship with people. Kind of reminds you of Jesus answer to the question about the greatest commandment, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And love your neighbor as yourself in the same way. Links those two together. Jesus said that that it's in those commands that that all of the law and the prophets can be summed up. And so, so God is interested in a people who love him and the love for him is expressed in merciful activity towards others, right relationships toward other people. When Jesus said, go and learn, he was using a statement or sort of a a tool that the rabbis often used in Jesus' day when they perceived that there was a topic that someone needed to go and study further. So don't miss the irony there. Jesus is saying to those who were the experts in the law, go and learn. Go and learn. Go and learn about the God that you proclaim. Go and learn about the relationship that he wants you as his people to have with him And how that then flows into the relationships that you have with others. Sounds very much like John, doesn't it? From last week. And now if we say that we love God and we see that someone is in need and we don't do something about that need, do we really love God? Love is action. Love is sacrifice. He was telling those who prided themselves in their conformity to the law, go and learn what you think you already know. Now, if you've ever wondered why so many of the Pharisees disliked Jesus, well, wonder no more. Because with this quote, he was, he was saying to them, you're, you're in bad company here. You've aligned yourselves with the people of ancient Israel who turned their back on God when they sought fulfillment fulfillment and, and joy and happiness and satisfaction in anything or anyone other than God. But the Pharisees were were good people. They were, by the day standards, righteous people. They were 
They were busy with following God. They were busy giving themselves to the study and interpretation and the teaching of the law. But they were missing it all. Right in the midst of their busy religious activity. And so as Jesus sat there, I just have this image of Jesus whining and dining with the sinners and the tax collectors. He says to the Pharisees, this is why I came. I came to be with these folks. I came for these people. The Pharisees were prideful in their keeping of the law. But they looked with disdain upon those who didn't keep it as they did. They followed the laws regarding sacrifice, but showed no mercy upon people, which is the sacrifice that God desires. Jesus' love of people and spending time with them caused great tension between himself and the religious leaders. Jesus brought life to people. Life that was denied to those same people by the religious leaders of the day. And as a result, we know this, he took all kinds of heat, he took all kinds of criticism. But it didn't matter. Because of the intimacy of relationship that he had with his father, Jesus was confident in who his father was and in who his father had called him to be and how his father had called him to live his life. And he forged ahead with the mission. Here's something I think is noteworthy. You go back and you read through some of the, uh, the, the earliest church history that, that we have available. All through the early centuries of the growth of the church, followers of Jesus distinguished themselves often by their love and their acceptance of other people. Now, don't hear me say, because I know that this is a concern for many of us, not love and condonement, love and acceptance. God's people have been known for ages as those who are willing to love those who are far different from themselves and accept them for where they're at. And sometimes love them even in spite of where they're at. They were known as friends of sinners. Here's a news flash. The followers of Jesus were a whole lot like Jesus. That's such an interesting concept. In the second century, there was a Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus. He was an early opponent of Christianity. Listen to this, this backhanded compliment that he makes. It's in one of his works. He says, those who summon people to the other religions make this preliminary proclamation. Whosoever has pure hands and a wise tongue. And again, others say, whosoever is pure from all defilement and whose soul knows nothing of evil and who has lived well and righteously. Such are the preliminary exhortations of those who who promise purification from sins. But, he says, let us hear what folk these Christians call. Whosoever is a sinner, they say. Whosoever is unwise. Whosoever is a child, and in a word, whosoever is a wretch, the kingdom of God will receive him. Do you not say that a sinner is he who is dishonest, a thief, a burglar, a poisoner, a sacrilegious fellow, and a grave robber? Why on earth 
This preference for sinners among Christians. Answer? Because that's what Jesus did. So let me ask you this morning. Are you known by others in your life as someone who has a preference for sinners? Am I known as someone who has a preference for sinners? Who do you hang out with? Who do we mix it up with? We said last week that that loving others is really where the heat gets turned up if we're serious about bringing Jesus to life. Is it not the whole reason that we're talking about this? Why bring Jesus to life? For any other purpose than that others might experience Him and be drawn to Him. Say yes, that's why we're studying this. Thank you. So, so let's be clear on this point. When we talk about loving others, the others that we're talking about are those who do not know Jesus. Or as far as we know, they don't know Jesus. This morning I have one take-home truth in the midst of all this from our text that I, that I want us to learn from Jesus so that we can better love others. Those who don't know Jesus. And, and we'll tie it to the concept of sacrifice. And then we'll, we'll let that launch us into to next week where we will tie the idea of loving others and sacrifice into our celebration of, of communion. The, the take-home truth this morning is not deeply profound. It is, in fact, profoundly simple. But I think it is stretching for many of us, myself included. It's cause for significant soul-searching. Here's your take-home truth. You ready? We must open our eyes to those around us and see them for who they are. We must open our eyes to those around us and see them for who they are, not for who they present themselves to be, but for who they are. The first sentence of our passage this morning tells us that as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And everybody who's traveling with Jesus sees him look over there at the tax collector's booth and they go, oh, no, not the tax collector's booth. No, Jesus, stay away from there. Don't you know those people are traitors? They are Jews who work for the stinking Romans. They are thieves. They not only levy taxes against their own people, but they steal. They collect more than is required so that they can pad their own pockets. No, not the tax collector's booth, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Walks right over to that booth, looks that lousy tax collector in the eye, and says, You bum. Follow 
me. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus knew that he was exactly what Matthew needed in his life. Whether he looked like it, whether he acted like it, whether he lived like it, Jesus knew Matthew needs me in his life. And at that moment, I want to suggest to you that Jesus sacrificed several things that are really important to us, if truth be told. When he walked over to that tax collector's table and he talked to Matthew, he sacrificed concern for what others would think of him. Because many didn't think well at that point. He sacrificed the possibility of peace with the religious authorities. Being in with the establishment. He sacrificed the comfort of his disciples. Who certainly did not want to hang out with the likes of Matthew. Why would Jesus do this? Because that is why he came. To save. He saw Matthew for who he really was. He saw Matthew as someone who was lost. Someone who was living in sin and in need of a restored relationship with his heavenly father. That's how we need to see people around us every day, my friends. We need to see them for who they really are and not for what they appear to be. And here's the thing. Since most people don't wear ID badges that say whether or not they're a follower of Jesus, we can probably assume that everyone that we meet isn't. Until further notice. If the statisticians are right, depending on whose stats you read, 80% of the people in our community are not followers of Jesus. So just count on 8 out of 10 people that you hang with every day not Knowing Jesus. And if we're going to bring Jesus to life for them, then we must love them. And that's going to require sacrifice on our part. Several sacrifices that I can think of right off the bat. Big one. Sacrifice of our personal comfort. Oh, man. I can't hang with people like that. I can't be with people like that. They tell dirty jokes. I can't, I can't be with people like that. Do you know what their lifestyle is like? I can't be with people like that. They don't believe the same way that I do. Duh! That's the point. Sacrifice of personal comfort. Certainly sacrifice for what others might think of us. If we embark on a mission of seeing people for who they really are. You went Where? You hung out with who? Yeah, sorry, that's what Jesus does. Sacrifice of, of resources? Gosh. Sacrifice of needing to be thought well of, to be right. We'll need to sacrifice our natural tendency to judge and label people because they'll pick that up right away. And on and on and on the list of sacrifices go. I'm so intrigued by what happened in the space between verses 9 and 10. You know, Jesus goes up to the table and says to Matthew, follow me. And then... the
more. I mean, there's just a whole passel of tax collectors and sinners. And there is Jesus, the respectable Messiah, sitting in their midst. What is he thinking? He's thinking, this is what my father called me to do, and I'm loving this. Many tax collectors and sinners, Matthew says, came and ate with him and his disciples. So many lost and hurting people, my friends, found life in the presence of Jesus. Are lost and hurting people finding the life of Jesus in us? That will require sacrifice. Sacrifice of comfort and expectations of others, personal time. But how else do we hope to bring Jesus to life for the sake of others if we're not sharing life with them? Confident in who our Father is. Confident in our status as His children. And embracing the mission that He's called us to because Nothing changes. You come on up and prepare to lead us this morning. I want to close this morning with a just a brief story from a wonderful book called The Unexpected Adventure by Lee Strobel, Mark Middleberg. Lee talks about a woman by the name of Maggie. She had uh, she describes herself this way. The Christianity I grew up with was so confusing to me, even as a child. People said one thing but did another. They appeared very spiritual in public, but were abusive in private. What they said and what they did never fit. There was such a discrepancy that I came to hate Christianity. And I did not want to be associated with the church. Relationships and friendships and things went on. And she found herself a part of a small group at Willow Creek Community Church. She said, when I came to Willow Creek, I was desperately seeking certain things. I needed gentleness. I needed to be able to ask any question. I needed to have my questions taken seriously. I needed to be treated with respect and validated. Most of all, I needed to see people whose actions match what they say. I'm not looking for perfect, but I am looking for real. Integrity is the word that comes to mind. I need to hear real people talk about real life, and I need to know if God is or can be a part of my real life. Does he care about the wounds I have? Does he care that I need a place to live? Well, Maggie found Jesus in that small group experience. And at the end of a letter that she wrote to Lee, the author of this book, she included a poem that she had written. She said, do you know, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? Do you know, do you understand that when you treat me with gentleness, it raises the question in my mind that maybe he is gentle too? Maybe he isn't someone who laughs when I am hurt? Do you know, do you understand that when you listen to my questions and you don't laugh, I think, what if Jesus is interested in me too? Do you know, do you understand that when I hear you talk about arguments and conflict and scars from your past, I think maybe I am just a regular person instead of a bad, no good little girl who deserves abuse. If you care, I think maybe he cares. And then there's this flame of hope that burns inside of me. And for a while, I'm afraid to breathe because it might go out. Do you know, do you understand that your words are his words? 
Your face is his face to someone like me. Please be who you say you are. Please, God, don't let this be another trick. Please let this be real. Please. Do you know, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me?